Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast. We've been away a few weeks. Uh, my name is Mike Collier. This is produced by Latvian Public Media, Latvia Sabiodiski Media. Uh, yeah, we've taken a little break. I'm pleased to say we're now back. I was hoping that we'd be back when spring was well and truly here in uh, Riga, but it's still just on the cusp. It's quite a quite a chilly day today, but the, we, we're gradually managing to urge the sun into action. Um, I have another guest in the pod with me, and I'm delighted to have this guest because he's very much in demand at the moment. It's Janis Sartz, who's the director of the NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence in Riga, which we'll call Stratcom COE or Stratcom, which would you prefer, Janis? Stratcom COE is good enough for Stratcom me. Stratcom COE, okay, because there's so many different ways you can say it. Even that is kind of, you're communicating something by the way that you say the uh, Yes, <laughs> say the you're right. Now, we've got an awful lot to talk about. I mean, Stratcom COE itself is quite newsworthy, it seems, uh, in all sorts of different ways. I thought maybe we could begin by just introducing yourself, a uh, little bit of your background and what your job at uh, Stratcom COE actually entails. Well, my name is Janis Sartz. Uh, I'm director of the Stratcom uh, Center of Excellence uh, for now almost two years. Before that, I had a career at the Ministry of Defense, last seven years as a state secretary in the Ministry of Defense. Before that, worked in different assignments, both in Brussels and, and in Riga, on the defense policy issues. And Stratcom Center of Excellence uh, is a NATO-accredited Um, uh, body that is run by the nations that made it, which is currently number 11. Um, And we do research, information environment, information warfare, information confrontation. Based on that knowledge, we develop methodologies, doctrines for NATO or NATO nations, how to act in these situations. We do training, we do exercising, we do give some operational support, although which is very important to mention, we've, we are not authorized to do our own operations. So we're all, all only in a supporting role. And we also, of course, are extending our research into the new world of a digital information and, and, and doing the big data and other ways of analyzing the information flows in this space. Well, I'll get the uh, the question I've really been wanting to ask you for a long time out of the way, first of all, which is, uh, are you a nest of spies that's working on advanced uh, psychological techniques for controlling the whole world? <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, first, we're not spies. Um, by and large, of course, when we come up with a methodology or particular doctrine that is only for for NATO or NATO nations, but you could see on our webpage, um, majority of research is open, and that's whole point we're trying to say. You can't fight propaganda with propaganda. You have to be open, you have to show to others, even if uh, that raises questions or reactions, as some of our recent studies. So no, 
we do not. Although, of course, we study also from a scientific uh, perspective how human brain works, how it processes information, how in the modern age information interacts with a human brain, how these new digital information flows interact with the old human being and the old behavioral patterns and how they change. And strategic communication, stratcom, is a kind of, it's a real buzzword at the moment. And it only seems to have sort of come on the radar in the last two or three years, almost, in fact, exactly at the time when the uh, stratcom COE center was being set up and kind of initiated. What exactly is strategic communications? I know this is a, this is a question which is asked time and time again, but how, say, does it, does it differ from what might conventionally be called public relations or, yep. uh, you know, well, things. Public, uh, public relations are about communicating op- just to the society. Strategic communication starts with an uh, understanding that everything communicates. So it's not only what you say, but what you do is far more important and has an effect on the audience uh, rather than the, the word you're saying or uh, the word you're writing. Uh, so that is a comprehensive approach. And uh, the other notion for strategic communication understanding is that whenever you do something that communicates, which is action, uh, picture, uh, word, uh, it has an effect on the audience. So these two basic parameters uh, characterize, in my view, strategic communications and the need, therefore, to apply that approach when you are looking at what strategies you develop, what outcomes you are seeking, and how to make sure that you are not misinterpreted. And to just sort of ask about some of the nuts and bolts of daily uh, life uh, at the Stratcom COE. I mean, how many people do you have working there? How is it funded? And what actually happens inside? I mean, if you walk in through the door, what do you see? Well, uh, currently we have 32 people, which have been growing steadily from the first years uh, of our existence. The funding is now 3.6-3.7 million euros a year and that comes from uh, and that comes uh, both from the 11 nations that make the center and the majority comes from the host nation which is which is latvia so so basically two sources latvia and then contributing nations the everyday life is actually we're very busy as you said in the uh, introduction um we're doing we're running projects that are research projects uh, which is looking in a particular element of information uh, space, uh, which have been asked as a questions to us by the nations or by NATO. Then we do a lot of training activity. We participate in most major NATO exercises. Is that sort of as observers or...? No, no. Uh, well, we have a role to play either on, on certifying the capability for, for, for STRATCOM or information teams or actually to playing bit out this uh, information environment also mm-hmm. for the for the actual operation. And so there are many, many different roles. We do engage a lot with the academic community. We've recently established partnership with King's College of London, which is uh, starting their master's program in strategic communications uh, and have put up a Stratcom center of their own, of course, from an academic perspective. We do engage with think tanks. 
and even we do engage also with a with a business sector that is relevant to our area of expertise. So we do take part in a lot of conferences, meetings, etc. And of course, one new thing that is um, increasingly more relevant: people are coming to our center for getting their questions uh, answered. And, I mean, you mentioned that King's College have set up a Stratcom centre. We have the EU has a kind of Stratcom uh, centre as well. These things seem to be popping up all over the place. I mean, do you interact with these other... Yes, we do. Of course we do. And uh, although you would say, yes, the NATO Centre of Excellence, EU uh, East Stratcom Task Force, now the King's College, but I think all of them are quite well sort of supporting each other. For us, it's about deep dive, developing of methodology, but not really the communication. East Stratcom Force, if you've seen their, their feed, news feeds, they're actually communicating. They're, they're exposing the, the propaganda, and et cetera, et cetera. And then, the, for instance, King's College is doing a really deep, deep, deep academic approach to it, which, which requires much more time and, and, and sort of different approach to things. So I think they're all complementary. I was just wondering if you could give us a, a little bit of a, a pointer towards over the last two years since you've been in operation. What are the, the themes which have really come to the fore? Because Stratcom is such a like, fast-moving environment at the moment. Have there been aspects of strategic communications that have kind of surprised you or that were fairly insignificant, it seemed, and have now become very important? By and large, I think the themes have been consistent. Uh, Russia in number of forms and the way they employ, and because they're, this is one of those governments that quite overtly is ready to embark on a very serious information influence campaigns across the spectrum. Second is is uh, terrorism in particular. We've focused on Daesh. Third is I would say usage of social media and the social media as as one of the factors in the way the information environment changes in itself and how it can be employed by hybrid warfare strategies or, or different players. The thing that is, I think, now increasingly emerging in this is the usage of data. You know, people say the, 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 the oil of the 21st century is going to be data. And we increasingly are looking at the way that data that people leave all over the place in the digital world are then or can be used to fine-tune these um, information attacks, information operations on really very, very detailed level. The other thing that is, I think, increasingly um, evident is robotic technique use uh, usage, especially in disseminating the information through the uh, social media accounts that are robotized or, or, um, or applying machine learning or artificial intelligence techniques to these networks so that they evolve in, their, in the way they behave and, and, and push forward the information. So these are, I think, the, the recent trends we've been picking up. I think that's very interesting what you're saying about uh, personal information that, that people create and leave behind them, these trails, in that that, you know, often if we're talking about strategic things, it sounds like it's very much on a grand scale that this is, you know, political and military things uh, operating on continental levels, whereas if we're talking about our personal data, I mean, it really seems to come down to the individual and maybe that's part of what your job is about is sort of tying the the individual's data record as it were into the the broader picture do you think of, uh... but 
of course, uh, society is made of individuals. And uh, normally, um, the information worked like, like you you had a generalist approach. You talked to society or to the groups within the society. What the new technology allows, and that is certainly news already in the big marketing uh, campaigns, is they don't talk to the groups. They talk to individuals mm. by buying up the data on individuals, probably not with uh, name and surname, but and you know computerized ID option. Uh, you find you in your marketing material for a given person. So if you looked somewhere right, like in Latvia for a new shoes, and then you go to UK and first thing you see in your smartphone, oh, there's a good shoe shop next yeah, to it. Yeah, we all have had that sort of experience, haven't yeah, we? So yeah, so that's how it works in the marketing world. If you apply the same concept and technology, no, uh, the, the methodology is there, it is also easily transferable to the influence campaigning. So mm. people have their worldviews, they have their motivation, behavioral patterns. And if you fine-tune the, the way the information to them in the way that would really get through their, let's say, rational box blocks in the brain and straight to the emotional uh, element, uh, you can be far more successful. So it's I am not implying it is already happening, but I think it's around the corner. And I suppose that also is uh, one of the valuable aspects of strategic communications is the ability to anticipate rather than to just react to things yes. that happen. Yes. Well, that's what, when we do these deeper looks, uh, that is what we're trying to really achieve, is not only to follow up what, what has been happening, but actually now when we're more, more than two years in operation, getting there to, to actually predict what would be the next uh, um, steps in the in the development and i think we're 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 getting there we're getting there okay well on that note we'll finish the first half of the podcast and we'll come back in a moment after this brief message uh talking about russia ukraine and various other uh, hot topics so we'll be back in a minute minutes from latvia with mike collier well, welcome back to the Minutes from Latvia podcast with me, Mike Collier, and my guest in the pod today, Janis Sartz from the NATO Strategic Communication Center of Excellence in Riga. I have seen you before a few times, Janis. I remember when you were at the Defense Ministry, and I wanted to thank you, actually, for one occasion uh, when you really cheered me up. Uh, it was about two years ago. Uh, and it was in Tallinn. You had been sent to represent Latvia at the meeting with Ash Carter, the US Secretary of Defense, <laughs> and the uh, Estonian Defense Minister. And uh, Ash Carter was making an announcement about deployment of uh, uh, US forces in, in, in Europe. And I was in a really bad mood because I'd been sent up to Tallinn at very short notice. I'd like driven four hours up there, had a really busy schedule, and I knew that it would just last 20 minutes, and then I'd have to drive all the way back to Riga. And and uh, Ash Carter came out and yourself and the uh, uh, Estonian defense minister as well. And uh, Ash Carter said his statement. OK, I've got the quotes. The Estonian uh, defense minister as the host said a few things. And then you stepped up and you had one of the biggest smiles on your face <laughs> I've seen for a long time. And I realized that I could kind of read your mind, I thought. And you were thinking, 
I'm standing here next to the US Secretary of Defense making an announcement. And you look so pleased and so like pleased to be doing your job. They'd actually really cheered me up and thought, well, actually, I should be enjoying my job as well. And so my, my drive back home to Riga afterwards was, was a, a lot more cheerful. So that, thank you for that. That is good to hear, because actually, if you remember the circumstances, that was just before legal celebrations. So you really <laughs> That's had why I was grumpy as well. Yeah, yeah. You had to have your motive, find your motivation to really be cheering up. So Oh, thank you. <laughs> and so speaking of making people smile, um, one of the, uh, in fact, the most recent piece of research, I think, that uh, the Stratcom COE Center has released has been about the use of humor in strategic communications. I wonder if you could just give us a little um, uh, overview of that. Well, yes, uh, we've been asked to look at the, the way human emotions can be uh, used in uh, communications and we've uh, now observing the Russian-Ukrainian conflict in for about two years. We've seen the, the explicit use of humor, so we really wanted to look and understand how and why humor uh, communicates. So uh, the research actually developed a methodology how to understand humor uh, in the human communication. I think that very interesting because it's it's a multidisciplinary approach from the psychological, political science and behavioral science perspectives, dissecting the the way humor works for uh, for human beings, and also looking at two examples uh, from Russia and one from Ukraine to to test the methodology. I think uh, humor actually is quite powerful because it. Um, Actually, as, as I've said some uh, in previous part, humor has ability to go directly to the emotions circumventing the rational part of a brain. And as such, you can address very difficult issues and implant them into the audience, or it might be one of your last resorts of psychological resilience in very difficult circumstances. So humor is actually one of the powerful tools, but it is very important that people have the same background knowledge. Mm -hmm. You can't like, I would not be ready to joke for the British audience because I don't have the background. So so these nuances, um, this this work really uh, looked at and, and there's of course more research to be done, but, but I think that is uh, really um, the research I really liked. Yeah, I mean, it's true that uh, in order to get a joke, it's almost uh, an affirmation of a certain identity is involved in that, you, as you say, you need to pick up on the cultural references. and, and Exactly. So and therefore, you can use also the joke as an uh, build again in team against the out team. So if you understand the joke yeah. and you can self sort of ref, um, refer to that joke, you are in. And then if you build the joke on the contrast, then the others are out. So this is also one of the psychological effects of choking, of actually building these in our teams. Well, I want to take a little bit of credit here as well, because uh, a few years ago I wrote a book which is all about uh, sort of stratcom-type experts, and at one point they talk about the development of the new Russian comedy bomb, and that Russia would be deploying um, its uh, comedians to use humor in a sort of strategic <laughs> communications context. So I'm not saying that you stole my idea, um, and definitely not, but um, I'm glad that it sort of came to pass. Speaking of, of, of comedy, I mean, I watched some of the presentations, and they were really, really interesting. Uh, what struck me was the very, very narrow 
distance between, say, a propagandistic use of comedy and what could be a very, very satirical or a very sort of almost anarchic use of comedy. So in in one example, there was um, a Russian comedian who was kind of working out in the gym with Putin. And it was done in such a way that, you know, Putin was sort of effortlessly lifting weights and performing these feats while the comedian was sort of struggling with them. And this was used as an example of kind of... um, sort of a fairly gentle comedy, but was sort of showing Putin as a bit of a sort of Superman. But it struck me that um, you only would really need to kind of turn turn it up by one notch for it to seem so absurd, or maybe it's just in the viewer's uh, perspective, that's so absurd that Putin was being treated this way, that it would actually become quite satirical, kind of saying, look, we're attributing all these qualities to this guy, but we're saying he's superhuman, which is obviously ridiculous. So it's, it's actually quite a subtle uh, tool, it seems. You're absolutely right. Dissecting and categorizing humor is not really easy. I think where you can come to conclusions when, on this one example, you can't. And of course, you have to factor in this... Uh, the cultural differences that we might have in understanding the mm. same joke as, as the, for instance, the Russian audience. But I think the, the point here was, in that part of a study, actually looking at various cases, actually all coming to the same thing, where the Western leader is kind of dumb, mm. awkward, and etc., and Russian leader is always winning. And then when you go back to the actually understanding the way humor works to the human brain, to the uh, shaping the perceptions, then you understand how it works. I'm not actually, and I don't think the the researchers were implying there's a a grand strategy behind Mm. it. There is some relationships uh, with power and and money, but by and large, I do believe that's more about self-censorship and actually the idea, if I want to be in this show, if I want to get money, as I'm getting, so i rather behave in a ways that, you know, fit. I guess it's also possible to address, you know, different two audiences simultaneously, isn't there? I mean, any joke you tell, it's uh, going to be, some people are going to find it funnier than others. And I, Putin has this history of kind of dividing the media into this sort of 80%, 20%, you know, so you, you'll allow 20% of sort of semi-free media to kind of blow off some steam while you control the vast majority of it. it you could almost argue that a similar thing could happen with comedy in that, you know, you can, as long as most of the jokes are supportive, then we'll allow a few naughty ones to creep in or something. Yeah, well, there are not actually many naughty <laughs> jokes on, on Putin. I wouldn't find... There are some that you can say, yes, there is this... Sort you, of double-edged. Uh, double-edged yeah. and, you know, really thinking and, and some would get it. But it's very, very subtle, mm. uh, which is very country. Uh, and the whole point, I, I actually uh, told a joke from back in the Soviet times, uh, which I think when I read this uh, research piece very much came to my mind of was the biggest uh, freedom of speech in the U.S. or in USSR. And the, 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 the two guys uh, have a big argument and the, the American says, well, we have. I can stand in front of the White House and criticize U.S. president. And the Russian says, no, well, I have the same freedom as you do. I can stand in front of Kremlin and criticize U.S. president as well. <laughs> and I think that's where the difference is, yeah. is they are very conscious. And if you think of the way the narrative, Russian grand narrative to their own population is and the worldview it is reinforced by that humor show and my favorite uh, kremlin type joke is uh, the ghost of stalin comes to visit uh, putin 
And uh, Putin says, you know, what should I do about Russia? And Stalin says, well, you should uh, uh, suppress uh, the free press, you should lock up your political opponents, and you should paint the Kremlin blue. And uh, Putin says, why should I paint the Kremlin blue? And Stalin said, yeah, I knew you would ask about that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Right. Well, looking to the future, I mean, what else? I I should say uh, at this point, actually, all that uh, research is available online, isn't it? Yes, it it is. So I would encourage people to visit the uh, Stratcom COE website and check it out. And um, in fact, a lot of the previous uh, research as well. Um, I noticed that one of the conclusions you drew, maybe it was last year, there was some really fascinating uh, research on Daesh or ISIS, and one of the conclusions that we should we should call them Daesh from now on. Yes. But now it seems the US government is calling them ISIS again. They, they've is, been calling... Well, that is one of these things, is, is they are very adamant and unconscious of the branding strategies. So they brand themselves as Islamic State. You call it Islamic State, you have willingly or unwillingly notion of a, some kind of state. Mm. So what we say, we have to have a country branding strategy and the one that really works. And the fact that we call them so many names and some of them actually really Islamic State, which is really playing into their, uh, into their strategy, I think is very counterproductive. When we did our analysis, the conclusion was, and I've tested myself in the region, they are referred only by the Daesh and only those who are critical or confronting it are naming that Daesh. None of the supporters does it. So if we really want this name as a brand to work in the region where it matters most, we have to use Daesh because it resonates uh, very well in the audiences and reinforces their readiness to fight. So that's why we've been advocating, but uh, as you've noted, uh, not many have been Mm. listening. Well, if we might finish as well on something which is certainly uh, serious, uh, and that's the use of strategic communications, propaganda and so on, particularly in Ukraine. Uh, You've done quite a lot of research uh, there. Um, What are the lessons that we in the Baltic states in particular can take from what's been happening and continues to happen in Ukraine? I mean, it's a a very regretful situation, obviously, but are there things that we we can take from the Ukrainian experience that will help to, to protect us, to guide our future actions? Well, I would basically point to three things. First, understand that information increasingly is a weapon. Not just something that's of a nuisance that doesn't make it comfortable, but it can really, as we saw in the Crimean operation, be one of the central pieces of an operation where the kinetic action is only in a supportive role. Secondly, you never do fight propaganda with propaganda. Because of uh, one of uh, Latvian uh, public figures said, quoting, I think that was, but I might be mistaken, Mark Twain, don't engage in argument with idiots because first they'll drug to their level, uh, you to your, their level, and then uh, beat with their competence. <laughs> uh, so no propaganda against propaganda. So you have to do asymmetric. Third, which is actually also very important, avoid, say, do gap. That's one of the things where, and that's that's about the strategic communication broad approach. You should do the things you say. Okay. It's very dangerous, especially for the credibility of this source. If you constantly say one and do or are seen to be doing different things. So therefore, I think that is also something that is very much uh, we have to take away as a lesson. 
Well, those are three really good pieces of advice, I think. And uh, thank you very much for coming into the uh, pod today, Yanis, to um, to share those with us. We'll be back again in a week or so with another guest, hopefully. And um, yeah, thanks once again. That was really, really interesting. Thank you very much. Minutes from Latvia with Mike Collier. Produced by Renar Steimans for Latvian Public Media. Find out more at www.lsm.lv. <laughs>